Welcome to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, the first podcast to focus on the political side of pharmacy. Here's your host, Eric Geyer. Welcome back, Political Pharmacist Podcast listeners. I'm your host, Eric Geyer. And if you haven't listened to part one already of my interview with Dr. Sandra Leal about provider status for pharmacists, please go back and do so. But without further ado, here is part two, and it starts off with a great question about pharmacists who don't believe we need provider status. The other thing that I kind of thought was interesting is I've seen some pushback from pharmacists recently for provider status for any number of reasons. And what would you tell them or what would you ask them for pharmacists who says, I don't want provider status? Yeah, you know, and, I, and I, I've thought a lot about that because, you know, it's easy for for me to say, oh, it's provider status is great. But when you're, I feel like a lot of times when you're in a situation, and I know that a lot of community, community pharmacists have been tremendously overwhelmed with all the metrics that they've had to follow, um, all of the added uh, push. And it, it, a lot of times it feels to me like they don't see the incentives for them to do that, except for more work, less support. Um, you know, the, the, we were talking about, um, you know, some of the publications recently, the errors that are uh, potential just because of all of those added uh, requirements that are being imposed on the pharmacist. And some of those are not necessarily associated even to like better outcomes or metrics that, that are maybe not um, the metrics that we should be really looking at to show the value and impact. And so when you look at the incentives for that clinician in the way that they're in that practice, you could see why there could be pushback, right? I'm like, well, why would I want more work? It doesn't incentivize me in any way <laughs> yeah. to do that. So that's where it is. It's like the structure of how the the arrangement is um, currently set up is that it doesn't necessarily incentivize that individual to really want that. And so I totally understand that. Um, I, I've looked at that. And then the concern, though, on the other side of that is, you know, I think what are the consequences of now now having um, this volume that's that's required and um, other you know potentially other I guess competition coming in that will not make the dispensing function the main function that brings a revenue and now they're looking at cuts and all of this stuff so when you start looking at the implications of the payment models of DIR fees of all these things that are putting pressure. Um, you, we really have to look beyond the moment and the stress of the practice that you're experiencing, which is really hard because you're right in the middle of that and look at what what will this be five years down the road? And what if I don't have an exit plan to like, you know, position myself or um, be able to find a different job if this if this aspect of pharmacy goes away? And so that's where I think people just need to step back and say, why are people asking for provider status? And I just think it's a really hard sometimes to try to look at that vision when you're just stuck in the weeds. And so that's, that's, and it's hard to get people out of there because they're living it every day. That's the stressors they have. They have all the competing priorities um, at home, student loans that are incredibly tremendous. So you're yeah. just trying to deal with, you know, figuring out how to pay for life. So, uh, but it, it really is. It really is something that we have to start looking at because what we're seeing and what, what you see in posts every day on social media is the, the working conditions that pharmacists are dealing with, um, more difficulty obtaining jobs, uh, you know, just, I guess, less support again. And, and, and the implications of all of that are very significant. 
and even in sc school enrollment rates, um, you know, the, the, the students that are now enrolling for pharmacy are less and less than they used to be. So is the profession losing um, interest because of the work conditions or the lack of potential job opportunities that people perceive to be there? So I'm like a huge optimist. Like I feel like if 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 people well, if everybody understood the true value that pharmacists bring, and, and there are, you know, there are some incredible practices right now. Yeah. There's so many entrepreneurial opportunities. Like I wake up every day and I feel so lucky that um, I've had the the career that I've had. And I just see so much opportunity in the different practices that I've been in. And even now I wake up every day, I'm like, oh, I wish I could do this and I could do this. And, <laughs> and I, I what I'm missing is enough time to go out there and like set up a practice and like bring it's not that there isn't the opportunity. It's that I just don't have enough time to like you know, <laughs> um, set up that relationship. But it's there. The opportunity is there. We just have to sell it and you know go in there and justify it and start documenting what we're doing and doing and do it better than any other provider that's there because that's how you start showing the value. So I mean that's a long answer to a very complicated question. Uh, but ultimately, I just feel like you know. I see why it's really hard for people to say, yeah, I want provider status if, if I'm not getting any incentive. But the, 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 on the opposite side of that is if we, if, if what they're doing now goes away, what's next, what is their alternative? And so that's where I really feel like provider status provides all of this other opportunity that's, that's there um, that people really haven't tapped into fully and really appreciate what that could be. And it's, it is truly what you were trained to do. And it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, I feel like there's a lot of satisfaction in the uh, opportunity to help patients and to really practice um, the way that you were trained. Yeah, you used probably the worst four-letter word we have in pharmacy, and that's metrics these days because we keep getting those thrown at us no matter what what aspect of pharmacy we're in, I feel like. Uh, but you know, that being said, that is one of the biggest things is that people do say, how am I going to have that? It's going to be another metric I'm going to have to meet. What's you know, What exactly is – I don't see how this helps me. But there's multiple things as provider status allows us to bill for it. And in the end, it actually will save people money because we're doing things to help kind of get in front of the problem so we're not having as big of problems or so they're avoiding more expensive healthcare forms like that, whether it be ER visits or urgent care visits, things of more visits just to the regular primary care doctor that they didn't necessarily need. The uh, the other thing is, is if you get provider status, you have to be allotted time in some fashion to be able to use or to perform those tasks. So it would it should, at least in theory, provide more help of some sort, whether it be technician help or pharmacist help to a pharmacy or to wherever you're working. I'm always thinking of those people in chains because the most, that's why I think I've heard the most pushback is the, uh, the pharmacist in chains are, are like the big kind of three pharmacies are the ones who are like, Oh God, it's going to be one more thing I'm going to have to do. Uh, the other thing is, I always looked at this as a pharmacist, is it's your chance to break free. If you got provider status and you have a pharmacist license, you might not have to dispense a whole lot of pills, but you can go open your own pharmacy pretty easily, especially if the uh, pending uh, Supreme Court case gets the, goes the way that we're all hoping it goes here. And I think it just got moved up to what, uh, October or September? October 6th, yeah. Uh, October 6th. October 6th, yeah. that's coming up quick. Mm -hmm. That's only... That's less than three months away now as we're recording this podcast. But, but yeah, you know, it could really get you a chance to break free. So if you're not happy with where you're working, you can go step out and take the risk on your own. I know it might be loans or it might be a little bit of investment in time, but you can go make your own of it. And then they're going to have to treat you better because they're going to lose people left and right in that case. So I, that's that's why I think this would be a huge one provider status. You agree with that part? 
You know, absolutely. I, I feel like there's just, guys, if you think of, I mean, I always go back to diabetes because that's always been my, my area of yeah. interest, but just that we have 88 million people with pre-diabetes and we have so many people with diabetes that, that in my mind, if, if pharmacists could step up and do that as their management, they, they hit all sorts of measures. They hit all sorts of opportunities to impact the patient, like almost, you know, all of these uh, comorbid conditions, uh, I've like I've really worked on my own career to like deal with chronic conditions and then work more towards prevention. And that's why I ended up getting a public health degree uh, to do more population health strategies and then ultimately more advocacy and policy. Um, and those in my mind, pharmacists were you know well positioned to be able to impact in any of those scenarios and do it really effectively because of the training that we've had and because of the uh, what we bring to the table. So I really feel like there's so many different roles for pharmacists that are incredible. I mean, there's just so many things when you start thinking about how we've been trained and the experiences that we've had, that there is a bright future. Um, and But it does feel, you know, I, I again, I, I sense how, how difficult it is when you're, when you're in a practice that's very frustrating and you're, just being bombarded um, and you don't see a lot of options on the table because you feel like that's your only option at the moment. Uh, so we have to change that perception because there's so many other options. Yeah. And just to kind of round out the last thing I was thinking of, I just thought of it right now when, when I've actually discussed this with other people who are either in politics or who are in healthcare or even live around the area. The one thing I always bring up and this hits me, I'm in Ohio. I'm not sure how it is with you out there in Arizona, but uh, you know, if, if, if provider status isn't there and these pharmacies close up, like what you're saying, I was like the worst case scenario here. That's a lot of jobs that can get lost in the area, which means a lot of tax revenue. And that means people with educations are moving out and that can just decimate an area. And so I think that if you look at it as like a grander scale, provider status helps keep the state or the, you know, the local area, or in this case, you know, the United States as a whole. So we're not getting stuff shipped directly from India or China. If that, is the point it was to go in the extreme end with medications. We're keeping the, the brains in our country who are working for us to help us also get healthier at the same time. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What, what I think it's referred to as brain drain, right? You don't yeah. want to have people leave your community and then um, not be accessible where, where you train them and, you know, be a local resource. And there's such an incredible shortage of primary care providers already. I feel like pharmacists really fit that role exceptionally well. Um, we do public health, you know, definitely with vaccinations, but now with point of care opportunities with, you know, a lot of the programs we're working on are like diabetes prevention programs, diabetes self-management training, pharmacists, again, super well positioned to be able to lead those efforts. Um, and so I feel like, you know, if you lose somebody because a pharmacy closes, that's terrible. And now you've also missed an opportunity to really create more access points and more clinical care opportunities that uh, that would have been uh, potential, uh, definitely, you know, sustainability opportunities, but again, access points for people in the community. Yeah. And there's no reason why with all the training pharmacists have, and to your focus of diabetes and even blood pressure, we can't go in there and help make little tweaks. Like, you know, Hey, your blood sugar is a little bit higher. Let's try raising this dose a little bit of your insulin or raise it a little bit in your metformin or your blood pressure meds. Hey, it's a med you're already on. They prescribed it. Let's try going from, you know, five to 10 milligrams or 25 to 50, depending on the drug, whatever it is, just to make those little changes that could really help, you know, get their life better under control and provide them that accessibility to quality care that they need instead of having to go three months, six months, a year before they're having those changes made, which who knows how much that takes off of their end and the, the takes off of their life in the back end 
or leads them to something like a stroke or worsening eyesight or something along those lines. Yeah, I agree. There's so much, yeah, there's so many uh, interventions that we can make that, that are, and to your point, hypertension, uh, cholesterol, I mean, there's so many things, opioids right now. I was just reading the latest statistics on uh, the number of deaths last year from opioids. My goodness, there's so much work that we can do to impact, uh, you know, to impact outcomes and total cost of care for our, for our, uh, for our country. Yeah, it's it's astronomical. I some of those figures when you read about them are just you know like they're billions if not trillions when you carry out the zeros for what would be life like life expectancy type of things. So yeah, it's just astronomical. One thing we kind of danced around here was, do you think provider status could make pharmacy just better overall? Because and I, the reason I kind of always ask about this is you know. A lot of the chains have gotten tons of flack because of some of the New York Times articles that came out earlier this year by uh, Ellen Gabler. Do you think that provider status would push it that way? Or do you think that we might still have some issues with the chains kind of holding us back? Like we saw with COVID where some of the some of the PPE and some of the plexiglass just was not there for a lot of the major chains. But we saw independents throw it up real quick and make a huge difference. Yeah, you know, I mean, that's, it's, it's really hard to steer a big ship fast, right? And this pandemic has taken, like, it's really been quite a, a challenge. So it, I, I mean, I, it's, it's such an unprecedented time right now with pandemic um, that I, I do feel low uh, provider status is a game changer uh, for our profession. Because even now, when you start seeing some of the, um, like the, the community pharmacies, the retail pharmacies that are now adding, like, you know, I just saw that Walgreens was adding um, a, a pharma, not pharmacists, I'm sorry, uh, physician offices right in their footprint. And I know that's been done before. Walmart's trying to do the same thing. CVS, all of them are doing that. But pharmacists are not the people that they're putting in those uh, clinical settings necessarily. They're there in the pharmacy, but they're not necessarily utilizing them for a lot of the clinical interventions. And we know pharmacists are able to do um, disease state management. They're able to do all sorts of different types of interventions if given the opportunity. But the limiting, the rate limiting step has been um, the the models of reimbursement and pharmacists, again, not being not being considered providers has been the, I think, one of the biggest challenges why the pharmacist is, is mostly um, contained within the pharmacy versus within the within the practices that are there that are opening in that same footprint. So in my mind, if you start now actually dealing with um, the provider status issue and you actually have pharmacists that can be in those clinical practices, it creates a different type of, of, of sustainability model for the pharmacist. Not, you know, you still need your medications, no doubt. Um, so we're still going to have to figure that piece out. But you can then start seeing the, the, the pharmacist as the clinician that you would staff with in that clinical practice um, in a different way that's not not being considered because of that, that 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 specific situation right now. So um, so that's why I feel it's a game changer. You know, I mean, I've I've seen pharmacists that are like frustrated, like, should I go and get a different degree? Should I do this or that so yeah. I can get recognized? I'm like, you know, I don't think so because you bring an expertise that's very unique to pharmacy. Um, I feel like there's so many medication errors, so much fragmentation, so much, uh, so many things you can do to actually um, have make sure that the person has the best outcomes based on the impact that you're having. And that medication uh, piece of care, when it's not taken care of in a significant way, you have so many uh, problems. And truly, in my mind, I have, I can count the number of times in my hands, and I've seen hundreds of patients over my career, thousands of patients, 
every single time I've spoken to a patient, there's always something that's wrong with their medication regimen, either confusion or duplication or fragmentation or a gap. Um, And I always think, oh my gosh, if I hadn't seen this individual, if they hadn't had an appointment with me, or if I hadn't stopped to like really review their medications, this would have been missed for I don't know how much longer, I don't know what the situation or the consequences of that would have been, but it has been rare in my, in my um, practice, in my, um, in my experience that, uh, that I haven't made a significant intervention that was like, in my mind, incredibly important. And so that's why pharmacy can't go away. That's why pharmacists can't go away. Because if you take away that expertise, um, that's terrible. And right now, I feel like we still don't have the pharmacists seeing patients um, with enough frequency to give them that full review to address those problems that ultimately cost the healthcare system and that individual so much money, right? So much um, quality of life, so many issues, uh, because we haven't had that be the standard of care. And that has to be the standard of care, that the pharmacist is always part of the team that's managing that patient's medications effectively. Um, That has to happen. Yeah, and you know, it's funny because obviously you mentioned opioids earlier. We've seen huge crackdowns on those with just from the insurance plans, from state levels, from every level of government you can think of. And one thing I see every single day in my pharmacy, I just saw tonight before I, you know, one of the last patients I saw for coming home and then recording this podcast, there was a drug interaction that the insurance flagged. Uh, there was a benzodiazepine prescribed for the patient and they were prescribed an opioid in an acute setting. And you know, we have to go and override that. So the insurance is already asking me to, hey, do you approve this? And essentially now it, I'm looking them up. I'm using my uh, prescription drug monitoring database. I'm doing those types of things to really assess the patient, and make sure this is right for them. And in this case, it was an elderly little lady who's there. And I'm like, all right, this is kind of a bad combo to give somebody who's in their 60s or 70s. And so, you know, I call the person who wrote it and I'm like, hey, were you aware they're on a benzodiazepine? And I think it was Xanax. I forget exactly which one. And they were like, no, she didn't tell me she was on that. I'm like, okay, did you look at the prescription drug monitoring program? No, why would I do that? She just came in and, you know, had hurt her hip or whatever it was. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, hey, I got to get approval. I got to make sure we're doing the right thing. And so then we had to have this whole discussion. And really, if I had provider status, I could go in there, look at it. I could have that discussion. I could document it with her, assess if it was safe instead of just being that person who has to either approve it and hope they don't get hurt or just, you know, deny it then because I'm, you know, a little overbearing and I'm not sure and I'm not too confident because I'm not the one who's quote unquote supposed to make that call, if you will. And that's like, again, like you said, with opioids, it's a huge hot button issue. That's something that we could definitely make a big impact in with something like provider status because I can be a little more involved now in that patient's care. Mm-hmm. The, I agree. The, the other thing, since obviously we're recording this during the pandemic, uh, I think it's interesting that we're seeing those uh, the COVID sites popping up everywhere because I currently use the Abbott ID Now machine, which is amazing. I'm not paid by Abbott in any way, shape, or form. I want to make that clear. But with that machine, just different types of swabs, obviously I'm doing COVID, but it also does flu, strep, and RSV. Those are some simple things we can do and keep people out of emergency rooms, especially in a time like a pandemic, and keep things from spreading around the hospital or infecting somebody else, which overall would reduce infections and reduce you know the cost of care for the community as a whole, not necessarily one person. And that's what I thought when you said those clinics are popping up. I'm like, man, I would love to have a little room with like one or two of those machines. I could just take care of people, address their issue right there. Hey, you got the flu because you have to get treated within the first, what, 24 hours for Tamiflu to work. Knock that out right there. Here's your prescription. 
We took care of it all in the pharmacy. You didn't have to risk going and get somebody in the hospital sick or getting an ER physician sick or another nurse sick at the same time too. I mean, yeah, it's the the potential and the access that that a pharmacist affords is incredible. And I think about that. I mean, absolutely for for flu and strep, and then for COVID. Um, but you know, one of the things that I was doing in my practice early on was point of care testing for uh, diabetes and and actually preventing therapeutic inertia. You know, one of the things yeah. that I saw when I was managing people with diabetes is one, they um, they needed A one Cs, and so we were able to do point of care testing for A one Cs, and then we were able to actually make a change in the either insulin or start or stop or change um, with our collaborative practice agreement, the therapy right there, we didn't have to wait for the lab results. We didn't have to wait for the provider to order that. We were the providers. We ordered the test. We started, changed, did whatever we needed with the therapy. And then that patient was able to get to control faster because we weren't waiting on all these different things that are by themselves already barriers to care. Because if you tell a person, hey, you need to make an appointment for this, um, that's like one more trip. That's one more copay that might be challenging for that individual patient to, to be able to get to when you can just handle it right there because they're in front of you. And to the point that we even implemented um, an eye camera and we had the MA that worked with us oh, take wow. the pictures for the for the patient's um, uh, eyes to be able to screen them to see if they had any issues with uh, with a retinopathy. And if they did then the person was more likely to follow up with an ophthalmologist because we had screened them right then and there. So those to me were some of the incredible changes of how we ended up creating workflow and uh, really creating the the practice type that then allowed for that patient to be taken care of quicker with, with, with less time wasted to get to goal because we were addressing things uh, pretty immediate. Uh, and so, you know, in my mind, that's the kind of uh, practice that is transformative where you actually start really impacting uh, satisfaction for the individual because they're getting their needs met, their their results are better, you're impacting total cost of care. And yeah, to your point, you're reducing high cost visits like emergency room visits or even visits with a provider that we are absolutely more than capable of being able to handle um, very effectively. Uh, so, though, you know, it's, it's a win-win for the system if you really recognize the value for, as, a, as a whole system and not consider it like, you know, like you're competing or there's yeah. some sort of turf issue because you, you're actually making uh, everybody have a better situation. Yeah. And, you know, speaking of that with diabetes, that that's one of my passions too. I had a grandpa who had a lot of issues with it and growing up, it was very eye-opening to see that kind of play out over the course of his life. And as I grew up and be, part of because of that, but also just because I try to be a good pharmacist, whenever I was doing CMRs with diabetic patients, I think it's good to have that extra double check, which is why I like the C, I love doing CMRs is because, yeah, Hey, you've seen all these different doctors, endocrinologists, primary care, maybe a cardiologist, but then you, you're seeing me and maybe I have a little bit different perspective on it than them just because the way I was trained or just because of where I grew up, whatever it is. And so many times I would be talking to diabetic patients and a simple question of, hey, how do you sleep at night? Oh, I sleep okay. Any night sweats? Any sort of you wake up and the whole bed soaked? Yeah, it happens once in a while. Okay. How often does it happen? You know, and it just starts a whole different dialogue. Mm-hmm. And I probably, when I'm actively doing CMRs, which hasn't been a whole lot recently, but when I've been doing a lot of them, I probably catch one or two of those a month where somebody's having, who's diabetic is having major issues controlling their blood sugar and they can't get it controlled and they're just throwing more drugs at it. But part of the mm-hmm. problem is, is they're crashing in the middle of the night and then their blood sugar spiking in the morning. And it's just like the stupid little thing, but I don't, 
I just think that's a good way the pharmacist are the extra set of eyes in healthcare that can help check it from just a slightly different angle from the way we're trained. And like you said, it's not a turf war. It's just providing the best overall care for that person. Absolutely. Yeah. And now, I mean, I, now I'm even thinking about some of the new opportunities with some of the remote monitoring, you know, my daughter has a CMG continuous blood glucose monitors, uh, all the opportunities to help patients with uh, navigating those tools and being able to more effectively yeah. use them. Those are all incredible things that I think, again, our pharmacists are well positioned to be able to um, help with with deployment of that because there are so many uh things that are coming down the road and i think you know pharmacists again can just jump in and and be uh ready to be able to to take that on yeah for sure i i'm always game for stuff like that but i i definitely think just having the extra point and access of care is huge with with our role in healthcare so one thing we've kind of talked about this is being a financial boon for pharmacy and Obviously, we understand that because we would be able to bill and be paid for that. So some people might look at us as us being greedy, if you will. But how do you think that would help or would impact healthcare spending overall? And if you know of any studies of pharmacists being providers that are out there? Yeah, you know, it's so funny us being able to bill and 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 that what you said about greed. What I always talk about is like we're not asking for anything more than any other provider. We want true parity, right? We want equality. So in my mind, that right there, I just feel like that's just it's almost like we're put in an unfair position because we we do interventions, we have impact, we show outcomes, and yet at the same time, we're not compensated for those clinical services. The way that other providers are and 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 so there have been numerous truly there have been numerous publications out there i remember um uh the united states public health service corps had written a letter to regina benjamin the surgeon general at the time a few years back to really again it was during the time of advocacy for provider status at that federal level and they compiled a, a report that went to her that had I don't know how many citations that showed the return on investment that pharmacists had um, on different conditions, on disease states, on, you know, on all sorts of things. And even in that report, I remember very clearly in the back, there was even a, like a, a survey for the physicians and what they thought and what their satisfaction was with working with providers. And it was very, very uh, supportive. So when I look at that, when I look at that report, and there's been so many other reports since then that have been published. I have had personally, I've, I've actually published papers that show the impact of pharmacists on um, on reduction of A1Cs, on diabetes, on return on investment, on numerous interventions, anything from medication readmission reduction programs, telehealth encounters. So the evidence is there, no question. Um, I think where it, we get stuck a lot of times when we're trying to make the case to Congress is that, you know, they use the... Um, the the cost of what it's going to cost to have this provider added and then they don't really look at the offsets of what we're actually going to say to the system uh, to to make that case it's almost like they're only using the cost evidence but not necessarily the impact evidence and obviously that puts anybody at a disadvantage so how can you make that case to do that not that not that uh that they have to but that's what that's what historically has been the biggest challenge and so uh i i'm not sure how we're going to have to overcome that, but we're going to have to overcome that. And I think what we're doing and when we're seeing the pendulum swing on um, the whole system that's now requiring more value and even even how drugs are being considered for reimbursement is yeah. whether or not drugs are going to work or not, right? That's a, a very unique way to think about reimbursement, even for medication. So 
it's the same way that providers are being looked at. Are they providing um, the outcomes that they need to show in order for them to then get paid? Otherwise, there's a percentage reduction on their you know, entire panel um, or incentives in the positive or negative way if they're not providing um, the impact uh, or the outcomes on the populations that they're managing. So what the point of all of that is, is that, again, it's, the pharmacists are now falling into the same um, types of requirements, or I should say the opposite. Other clinicians are now being required yeah. to show value um, where we've always had to do it. Now others have to do it. And when we're being put head to head, we are at least as good as, and, and in some instances and with some conditions, especially those that involve medication, sometimes we're more impactful in certain areas to be able to even show, you know, more impactful value or outcomes um, to that uh to whoever we, we need to show that value to. So I, I feel like because of the changes in the payment models for healthcare and because CMS knows that they have to rein in the cost somehow, um, these these risk type of models, these value-based contracts are really gonna be the drivers for how healthcare is paid for and we are well positioned to live in those environments because we do that very, very well. You know, one thing that kind of you mentioned that the analogy I like to use with the way you mentioned it is pharmacy is kind of like the seatbelt, right? Like you've got the physicians and people who are performing surgeries. Those are a lot of the big expensive things that are driving healthcare. The, some of the other decisions that are being made, admissions to hospital rates, things like that. But pharmacists are like the seatbelt where that, that little safety check, that last line of defense, that if it all goes wrong, we're also still there to help keep it all tucked in place and to keep you safe. That's the way I look at it. Why we need provider status. We need to make sure that we have, a better seatbelt so that we can be more effective in keeping people safe and keeping them healthy and keeping them out of some of those high risk situations, right? Like you can drive a car down the road a hundred times and it's safe. That doesn't mean that you don't need it there for that one time you need a seatbelt. Maybe yeah. that's underselling us a little bit because we should be obviously more actively involved in it. But that's why I always looked at my role was I'm the seatbelt. I'm the last person to keep you safe before you get the medication or before you go out in the world and who knows what else happens to you. Absolutely. And I feel like I, you know, I always, my, when I was first doing some of the work I was doing, it was considered a best practice or, you know, something, oh, wow, how innovative that you get to be in this collaborative practice model. I'm like, you know what, I don't, I don't, I don't want this, this to be a best practice or innovative. I want this to be the standard of care. And I want, I want patients to have the pharmacist be part of the, the team before a prescription is written, during the time the prescription yeah. is written and after the prescription is written. And like you said, it's not um, it's not a one time thing, right? It's it's not a stagnant type of uh, regimen. Things change. People take over the counters. There's so many other medications yeah. and and even food that had interactions <laughs> with medication. So you really have to be consistently uh, checking that because there is potential for so much um, confusion. And then, you know, when you have people that have uh, insurance, I the luxury of insurance, but yeah. things get changed all the time. Non therapeutic switching for formularies and things like that. You just introduce so many more uh, confusion or, or complications into uh, an individual's uh, life and in their healthcare. That it, unless you actually have somebody monitoring that with some consistency, there is going to always be room for medication errors and medication risk. Um, and you know some of the really cool stuff that's coming out with uh, pharmacogenomics. I, you know, I bring that a lot because I feel like that's an even, you know, wow, talk about some of the new yeah. tools in your arsenal to really proactively prescribe the better so that you can reach, you know, you can, again, I talked about therapeutic inertia, but 
you know, get people to goal quicker, not have the side effects because you actually identify what people respond to or not based on uh, on their genetic profile. To me, that's just some of the really very uh, exciting things that are coming um, coming down the road for pharmacy. That you know, if we step in there and we take we take ownership of that, that we will be incredibly well uh, positioned and valued because we we know absolutely over and over because we've we've done it we've seen it we've documented it that we bring value uh to a patient when we're part of their care yeah you know i've i've had dan krinsky from uh pgx on here and sue paul who are co-owners of co-founders of that and some of the stuff they talk about was just amazing but one of the things you mentioned was the care after the prescription leaves one of my friends in florida victoria reinhardt's i think she listens to this so i'm going to call her out a little bit but she did an awesome thing in Florida where they were actually going in ambulances to people's houses who were like, you know, high admission rates and things like that. And we were able to show a huge benefit of her just going in the ambulance with them to people's houses proactively to help keep them out of the hospital, keep them out of urgent needs and catching things like, okay, you know, they tell the doctor one thing, but who actually comes in their house, looks at him, assesses this and, you know, catches drug interactions with foods and stuff like that. You know, I, she was focused a lot on Medicaid patients, but... You know, the way that they tell you they eat versus the way they eat, and everybody, not just Medicaid patients, it can be very different. And then it might be, hey, you're eating something that just is totally interacts with all your drugs. Like they didn't mention that they're going and eating six grapefruit a day or something and they're on a Torvastat. And you're like, oh, God, like that's the worst thing you can do. What are you doing? And I thought that was pretty interesting that, you know, she was doing that and showed a huge benefit. And one of the limiting factors she had was the lack of provider status. So she had to go through it like a grant and had to go through a lot of other hurdles. And I forget the status of that program currently, but it was one of those things that when you saw the benefit it made, yeah, it was some money up front, but the amount it saved in the back end was just exponential versus how much it actually cost them to go and do something like that. Well, I feel like now with the way that, you know, it's so funny, but you've got these big payer um, health healthcare payers now that there's so much vertical integration that, and now patients are, are staying with these, these big payers for longer periods of time. There's not, unfortunately, not that many options anymore. So there is more of an, an incentive and a responsibility by the health payers to really think, oh my gosh, you know, this person's going to be around for a while. I better start really thinking about investing in some of these more uh, preventative type of services that hopefully in the long term um, is is improved care for the patient with lesser acute uh, expenses yeah. uh, because people are having to stay with their insurances longer. And then, in, you know, employer groups that are invested in their employees, um, if they can also do work with, with groups like pharmacists that can come in and, and do education, management of diabetes, screenings, uh, vaccinations, um, now, you know, testing, COVID testing, for <laughs> example. All of these are things that ultimately... Uh, improve the experience for the uh, for the for the patient, but as an employee and as an employer, because now you have a workforce that's uh, able to do it because they're they're healthier. So those are all really good um, things to be doing. Yeah, for sure. Um, that that kind of wraps up what I had on you know for provider status for pharmacists. Was there anything else you wanted to add before I ask the two questions I ask everyone who comes on the podcast? No, nope. Okay. I don't have anything. I mean, I think we've covered a lot of different topics, so this has been great. Great. Uh, I hope the listeners enjoy the uh, the two parts of this epi- of this discussion because it's a lengthy one. So I'm going to have it split here in two episodes because I think it's worth it. And I think it's worth a listen because it is such a a very complex topic. It's not like oh, we get provider status and that's it. It's all fixed. No, it's a 
a lot more layered and nuanced and very grays, not a, as opposed to some of the black and white issues. So uh, with that, moving on, if there was one thing you could change about pharmacy, what would it be? Um, I, you know, I, I was thinking about what, how, what I would answer with this. And right now, one of the things that I think about is that we don't have as, as much diversity, I think, that would represent the populations that we serve. You know, I remember when I was in pharmacy school, I was one of just a couple of students that spoke Spanish. And now that I'm working with um, with a company that I'm working with, we value people that are uh, bilingual. We value diversity. We value, um, you know, groups that represent the populations that we're serving because we can make a more personal connection. So I just and this is not just for pharmacy, but I think in general, having um, diversity and having more representation is, is something that would help the profession ultimately, and it would help the patients that we're working with. So that would be one of the things that I would, you know, I think would really improve um, um, the profession. You know, I was just reading something about that, and it was a study on interactions with African-American patients, and it showed how much better African-American doctors were at interacting with them and the way that they understood life and the way they viewed it and be able to get much better outcomes because of that. So I think that's a, that's an interesting take that I think is completely valid. Yeah. I, I remember my, my own practice uh, at the FQHC I worked at, I said 75% plus of my day um, speaking Spanish to, to the Spanish population that I was working oh, wow. with. And yeah, it was great. I mean, people really like appreciated that and even when I worked at I actually used to work in a community pharmacy when I was a resident on the weekends I used to work in uh, community settings and um, you know I would pick my schedule and go into the communities and people would find out oh you speak Spanish hey let me go and bring my cousin or my mom or my (laughs) brother because they have a question so that because they didn't have access to somebody that spoke Spanish all the time. So they just thought that was really, you know, that was nice that they had somebody that spoke um, the language. So I just feel that that's really um, important. And it is truly like because I'm Hispanic and I was working in a primarily Hispanic population, um, I could relate to things, especially with diabetes around the culture, the food, yeah. um, things that I could talk about uh, because. Uh, they trusted that I was having the same experiences and so that, you know, I could actually relate to that. And I, I think that definitely uh, brought a lot to the table with trust and my ability to impact the population. Uh, not to say it's the only thing, but it absolutely, it's really, it's incredible when you do have diversity and you do represent the populations that you're serving. Oh, yeah. I, I think that's a great take on it that no one's brought up on this podcast before. Uh, if you could change one law about pharmacy, federal or state, what could it be and why? One caveat. It can't be provider status because we've talked about it so much. <laughs> wow, that's tough because that's been like my whole thing. Right? <laughs> but um, yeah, like my whole career, that's what I wanted to make sure that happened. But I, you know, a few things. I, I really like there's a lot of um, work being done around prescribing, actually, you know, can for pharmacists to be able to prescribe. Uh, and I always think that that would help our profession even more. Um, I, we could do it in collaborative practice agreements, but independent prescribing in my mind is um, is something that I think is um, is important. And especially when you don't have access to any other providers or, you know, I think one of my biggest frustrations when I was uh, practicing is that I had collaborative practice agreements within certain disease states. And then when I saw a patient and there was something that was so obviously wrong and, you know, because, you know, you're, you're you're managing your patient, you know, the medications, you know, the conditions, um, and that you couldn't just address it. You had to actually go and uh, speak to a provider to get permission to do the right thing. Um, So getting permission to do the right thing would always frustrate me because it was a time delay or there was just, 
you know, that, that extra step to just try to do the right thing. So in my mind, that was one of the things that I felt would facilitate uh, patient care and practice, um, especially when you know that that's what needed to be done anyway. So, uh, so I always think about that and I still think about it now because it was just one of those things that on a daily basis, uh, I think every pharmacist sees it. Um, they experience it and if they could just do it, <laughs> that yeah. would be incredibly helpful. You know, the, there is nothing worse than when you know the answer and you still have to call somebody, wait on hold for 25 minutes, go through a secretary, leave a message, just to ask the simple question of, mother, may I change this dose? Yeah. It's it's like the worst thing in the world. and Right? It is so much wasted time uh, to do the right thing. And that's ultimately the most frustrating thing to me. Yeah. And especially when you know that they're going to say yes, or they're going to say, nope, I need to see him for an appointment. You're like, well, that defeats the po- purpose of trying to save healthcare costs. Awesome. Well, hey, you've been a great guest, Dr. Leal. I appreciate you coming on here. I, I, I'm looking forward to your year as president of APHA and just praying that we're done with coronavirus by then so you can be unleashed <laughs> to go after this thing of provider status because I think that's I think yeah. you're going to help. If it's not done by then, I think you're going to help put the nail in the coffin on this one to get it over the finish well, line. I, I hope. I, it's going to be the moonshot, you know, for, uh, <laughs> for for my platform next year if this happens. This is one of the things that just would be the pinnacle of, of my career. At least, you know, if, if at least I had a little bit of a, a role in helping that happen because I know there's been so many people before me and there will be to, there will continue to be so many people after me that advocate for the profession. I'm just happy that I could. Uh, contribute in, in, in any way possible to help us have a better experience. Well, well, if that does happen when you're president, you're coming on here to do a victory lap. Well, I would absolutely <laughs> love to do that. <laughs> okay, great. Hey, uh, listeners, if you can, give me a five-star review. If you like what the, we're doing, you know, try and support my podcast or you know, support it on social media. I, I do this just out of the goodness of my heart and because I really, really think that pharmacy needs to be talked about more. And we everyone keeps talking about us, but we're not talking about ourselves enough. So I'm trying to give pharmacists a little bit of a spotlight here. So that way we can kind of take back our profession since we know our profession and more than other people do. But again, if you can find, drop a five-star review, that helps people find me. But as always, thanks for listening to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, your prescription for pharmacy and politics. <laughs> <laughs>